Well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and good evening. It's very nice to see this level of interest in this subject, and one can only hope that the same level will pertain at the end of these proceedings. One could be forgiven for thinking that philosophy and meditation are pointed in completely different directions and have nothing in common. Philosophy, the pursuit of wisdom, seems to carry all the connotations of action and doing, while meditation essentially is about not doing, about coming fully to rest. So at first glance, they certainly appear strange bedfellows. Our attempt this evening will be to see how they are related, how they are essentially bound up with each other, and even more intriguing, how one is said to be the master key of the other. So, to begin with, we should look somewhere where they do come together, and that is in the mind. So we should let this simple and possibly familiar diagram of a circle represent the whole mind. The lower end of the circle represents the active part of the mind where all our so-called thinking goes on. And this is the part of the mind which is closest to the physical world, where all the data flows in and out through the five senses. And this is the part of the mind which helps us to do the myriad jobs we have to get through in the course of a day, or indeed, in the course of a life. Even though there are only these five ways to appreciate the world, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling, seeing. <laughs> A tremendous amount of traffic is generated here, and often to the point where we hear complaints of information overload, or the more recent outbreak is techno stress. So this is a very busy place, a very noisy place, a place which can take all of our attention and use all our energy, all our coping skills, to the point where it is easy to end up living there, thinking it is the whole story, to the exclusion of everything else. Now clearly it is not the whole story, and because it is not the whole story, it is not a good place to live. Living here, we are at the mercy of the sensory world and its appetites. Whatever the five senses want to conjure up, and that can be anything, doubt, worry, anxiety, fear and foreboding, about things which more often than not do not happen, or promises of fulfillment, pleasure, and success, which more often than not fail to satisfy. Nonetheless, living here under the darkness of ignorance, 
We know no better. We take these imaginings and promises to be true. We think they are happening to me, and in the process, an ego is created. So now we have to contend with the ego. That ceaseless chatterbox in the head, which wants everything, which has an opinion and a comment about everything, and which critically is driven only by self-interest and personal preference. What I like and what I don't like. If it had an anthem, it would be my way. When this false picture is complete, the ego is taken to be myself, what I am, and its turbulent view of the world is taken to be the true view. No need to look anywhere else. Indeed, where else would you look? And this leads to the worst kind of ignorance. We don't know, and we don't know that we don't know. So, how does it happen that we are misled in this way? How could so much brilliance in the world be so mistaken? How could we sink to such a low estate and not know otherwise? Well, for all its brilliance, this wonderful, active, thinking, imagining, and dominating mind plays a cruel trick on itself. It is so all-pervasive and so powerful that it thinks it knows it all, when it does not. That it knows true from false, when it cannot. That it is a reliable arbiter of the good and the true, when it is not. In a word, it acts as though it has discrimination, which it does not. Discrimination is important because it is that in us which does know true from false. In fact, that is its business. And without it, anything goes. It's sometimes scary to think that many of the important decisions that we make in life are made here and made in this way. And very often, these are the what-was-I-thinking-about decisions which seem so inexplicable in hindsight. What those in the grip of the active mind don't know or have forgotten, is that discrimination lives somewhere else. And where it lives is in the higher reaches of the mind as a property of the intellect. And here it resides with the other qualities of the higher mind, reason, creation and inspiration, and decision, and thereby hangs a tale. 
the difference between these two organs of mind, the lower active and the higher intellect, offers the first clue in understanding our subject this evening. Once over the shock, and no mistake about it, it is a shock, that there is life beyond the thinking mind and its master, the ego, we can begin to consider the difference between these two minds and their respective workings. While the job of the active mind is to manage the senses and our contacts with the physical world, the job of the intellect is to discover the measure of truth in anything. So they have different, if complementary, jobs to do. Both are wonderfully endowed to do their respective jobs, but they are designed to work together. It's not a case of one or the other. See if you can recognize these short descriptions of these respective minds in us. Let's take the active mind first. The active mind likes to work things out, out based on what it has learned, what it believes, what it has picked up going through life. So education, family, environment, that kind of thing. And it usually operates by comparing one set of data with another. You recognize, should I do this or should I do that? But it always has a particular perspective, a narrow perspective. And its perspective invariably is, how is this going to impact me? In fact, the central sound of the active mind in us is its preoccupation with me, me, me. <laughs> What's going to happen to me? Uh, look what they're doing to me. I wonder what they think of me, and so on. In working things out, it will consider different scenarios, weighing one set of options against another in a kind of process to come to some compromise solution. And not surprisingly, a consequence of this is, along with the endless pursuit of the senses of their objects, is that the active mind never feels complete. It always feels little less than adequate and not surprisingly it's always in search of more more books more classes more advice more explanations more money more space in fact more of everything. Invariably, in this process, the simple becomes complicated. The great teachers of mankind often warn us about this needless complication and, like Einstein, remind us that however complicated the problem may seem, when the answer is simple, 
you can hear God thinking. So if we are to heed the wise, we should beware this needless complication, a consistent feature of the active mind in us. Now the intellect, let's see, intellect, I should put this up here. For the second organ of mind that we're dis discussing. The intellect, by contrast, is not subject to these meanderings, the meanderings of the active mind. It is, by its nature, simple, not complicated. It is never predisposed. It works spontaneously. It is free of any process, and it is free of any me considerations. It comes in fully programmed. It knows what it needs to know from the start. It does not work from public opinion, the current fashion, the latest hard cases, and perhaps even more important, it does not work from personal preferences, what I like or what I don't like. Rather, it works from first principles or what is true. And this regardless of what I think or what I feel. Indeed, a significant feature of the intellect would be the absence of me considerations. So, in contrast to the active mind's personal perspective, the intellect offers the non-personal or universal view. And invariably, that is the simple rather than the complex. Now, that is the description of the two minds. And with your help now, I want to see if we can get a feel of them in action. And in order to do that, I have two questions for you. And let's see what happens. What we're going to do is try and see these two minds in action and in the responses to these two simple questions. So are you ready for the questions? It won't be necessary to phone a friend or anything like that. These are very simple, very simple questions. But are <laughs> 50-50. But as many as possible should try and, uh, and, and perhaps we'll just run around the room. Here's the first question. Is it possible to have the art of horsemanship without horses? No. Yeah. Yes. 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 I don't know if fair enough. They can't all be right. Uh, right? No? Yes? Yes. No. A good row is in prospect here, folks. Right. No? No? Yes? Yes? No? Yes? 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 Last row there? Yes? No? No? Yes? Yes? 
Yes? No? Yes? Oh, no. <laughs> Don't feel that out. No. no? No. No. Okay. All right. Could I just ask some of the people who said yes to put up their hands for a moment, please? Yes. Okay. Why did you say yes? Well, it's just because I learned to swim and I wasn't in the sea. Right. Very good. Anybody else say yes? Well, you make the idea you learn the art of something without actually using it. I mean, it's much better if you learn the art of something without using it, but you could possibly. Okay. Somebody else? Yes? Yes, sir? You learn it on a mechanical horse, so you could be called up. I like it. <laughs> okay, any other yeses? Yes? You can visualize it in your mind, and you don't actually Okay. Well, there's enough there for a flavor of the thing. Who said no? Why did you say no? Okay, end of story. <laughs> now, I <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, that first question was asked 2,500 years ago by Socrates. And 2,500 years ago, no horses, no horsemanship. No process, no problem. If it's picked up by the intellect, with its gifts of reason, it will say, no horses, no horsemanship. However, if it's picked up by the active mind, the active mind says, I think I can figure this out. <laughs> I think I can come up with a way to beat this question. And so you will get a mechanical horse. Where? <laughs> and you get all sorts of analogies, swimming without being in the sea, and so on and so forth. You get elaborate, elaborate, brilliant expositions as to how you might beat this question. And the interesting thing is, it just depends on where it's heard. If intellect picks it up, and reason operates, if it's heard that way, and if the, if the question is heard precisely that way, reason will say, no horses, no horsemanship. No process, no problem. Interestingly enough, 2,500 years ago, no horses, no horsemanship. 2,500 years from now, no horses, no horsemanship. And you don't ever have to have seen a horse to be able to answer the question. Reason is fully programmed and will deal with it just in terms of the question. Active mind, all its brilliance, it will draw on everything that's ever seen, heard, read about books, told about books, to try and pull everything together to defeat it. And so you can see there the different way in which the two, the two minds work in it. Would you like to try another one? I won't get anyone to answer this one at all. Eh? <laughs> Now, can you all see those, ladies and gentlemen? This, you don't have to worry too much about it. This is a picture here of clay pots. There's a round pot, a square pot, a fancy pot, and a crack pot. Okay? And the question is very simple. I would just like you to look at the pots and say whether they are the same or whether they are different. Not a word. <laughs> Different shapes. 
Right. Now, <laughs> what kind of a group is this? Okay, here's the question. Will you just look at the pots? Look at the pots and say whether they're the same or whether they're different. They're different. So a round pot is different from a square pot. Okay, so different. Now, I want you to do this. This is a little bit more difficult. If you would look at the pots from the point of view of clay, they're all clay pots. From the point of view of clay, are they the same or are they different? <laughs> so from the point of view of clay, are they all the same? Does that mean what we're saying to each other now is that a round pot and a square pot, from the point of view of clay, are the same? <laughs> I thought we were I thought we were away and running. <laughs> And a round pot and a broken pot are the same from the point of view of clay. Clay doesn't matter. Is that correct? So is this also correct to say, let me ask you the question then, what did you use to determine that the pots were different in the first part of the question? And what told you about shape? Yes, but what told you the shape? Sight. And sight is a... Sense and senses operated by the active mind. Brilliant. Now, what did you use to determine then that they were all the same? What part of the intellect? What kind of not? We used reason. Yeah. Now here's an interesting proposition in front of us now. There are two minds in us operating. And depending which mind we're operating or using, the pots appear different, the question appears different, and perhaps the entire creation appears different. You may have noticed in the no horses, no horsemanship example, the simple spontaneity of reason and producing a no process, no answer. And then also the complicating wiles of the active mind trying to beat the question. If you were asked, ladies and gentlemen, another, just before we leave the topic, about these pots here, one answer said that they were all different, another answer said they were all the same. One answer reflected sense, the other reflected reason. One of those answers is partial, and one is whole. Which is the partial answer? If you can understand the question. Yeah. Yeah, now, I mean, let me ask the question again, right? One of those answers, which says the pots are either different or the same, is a partial answer, and one answer is whole. The different one, because it only deals with an aspect, it only deals with the shape, the name and the shape. But the reason answer, which says that the same, deals with the substance, deals with what they fundamentally are, including the name and the shape. All right? Why that's important 
ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to move on because I feel the temperature rising. It's not all down to me here. The reason that's all important is this, is that the realization needs to dawn on us that living here, living here, you can be clever, brilliant, but you need to live here to be wise. Intelligence, in the sense of being clever, and wisdom are not the same thing. I'm going to ask you to hold the question so that I can just keep this together for us. When fully in place in the everyday course of life, the intellect, with its gifts of reason and discrimination, establishes the connection with true knowledge. The restless active mind and the insatiable ego are restrained. The individual in us subsides. And what we find, maybe a little surprisingly, is not a vacuum, but rather contentment, satisfaction, and peace. And hopefully it will be possible to demonstrate this in a practical way before we leave this evening. So that we can confirm, again, in our direct experience, that the peace that is so sought after and that is so difficult to attain in any other way, that is the peace and freedom of the true self, is actually very close at hand and easily accessible. So living here, life goes on actively by me, and living here, life goes on peacefully through me. So the key to wisdom, to a natural life, a balanced life, a happy and fulfilled life, is to have the intellect in place, and the active mind behaving itself. And so the question is, how do you do that? And curiously enough, it is very simple. All we need is one simple but significant piece of knowledge. We need to know that unlike the busy active mind, the intellect can only work effectively, bringing into play its gifts of reason and discrimination in the presence of stillness. And that is free of the noise of the uncurbed active mind and all its works. What stands in the way is the very activity of the active mind and its precious fixed ideas. And these are the obstacles to stillness. All my concerns about fixing everything, working everything out, even understanding everything, while appearing to be facilitating a solution, are in fact obstacles, and chillingly no more so than in the search for truth. And this is the activity which has to be suspended if stillness is to be found and the balance restored. The way we have always worked, our brilliance and understanding, even our accumulated life experiences, all have to be surrendered in favor of simple stillness. In fact, the only safe refuge from the waywardness of the active mind is in stillness. The realm of the active mind, then, is necessarily ever-changing time and space, while stillness lives in the unchanging, ever-present and silent now. And if this is so, if this is the natural condition, why do we find ourselves so far removed from it 
laboring under the ignorance of a false me and all its works. Well, there's a third element of the mind that we have to take into account, a third element to consider. That is the causal aspect of the mind, or what causes the mind to act the way it does. And if you could just imagine for a moment the circumference of the circle to represent the causal aspect of the mind. In the causal aspect of the mind are all our predispositions and tendencies. Those things which cause us to use our mind in one way rather than another. Here is held our individual heritage. What we have earned over time secretly working away in us and determining the condition we find ourselves in and the way we use our minds. Rooted here then are the seeds of our misuse of the mind and where things can go off the rails and where we can lose the plot. Now just follow this for a moment. Because it is causal, its workings are hidden from us. Because it is hidden from us, we leave it out of account completely and miss the fact that our worldview is colored and limited in an individual way. This affects everything. The way we see the world and the way we react to it. If you have any doubt about this individual view, why do we so often think that all would be well if only others could see things the way we see them, or even do things the way we do them. Maybe even understand things the way we understand them. In fact, you can put that to the test at the break. See if you can find two people who will agree on what has been said here this evening and on its import. Not realizing the limitations of our heritage, we simply proceed marching through life, confirming and reinforcing our individual condition with every step we take. A kind of a circular motion feeding on itself as it becomes ever more entrenched and dense. Indeed, if it were not for the refining power of the scriptures, good company, good music, good literature, good art, we would have no relief or escape at all from this self-perpetuating cycle. Our position would be completely hopeless. And so if I could just summarize for you the unenlightened human condition, and we might describe it this way. Driven by a busy mind, full of fixed ideas and unseen conditioning, always seeking more thinking it has discrimination and acting as though it knows when it does not as the final and reliable arbiter of everything. Well, sometimes even in this dark condition there is enough grace to see that help is needed. There may even be enough grace for us to turn to philosophy and seek out the wise. If we are lucky enough to find them, the surprising remedy they have to offer mankind is meditation. Down the millennia, the great teachers of mankind have always known the true structure of the mind. 
and have evolved the practice of meditation to restore its natural birthright of peace, tranquility, and contentment. And that includes even a heavily panting Celtic tiger world. So, what is meditation? Well, not surprisingly, meditation is a practice which stands diametrically opposed to the insatiable grasping of the active mind and the ego. So it does not work by adding fuel to the fire, that is, by adding content to the mind. It does not work through debate, books, learning, or even understanding. But perhaps most helpful of all, in the face of the needless complications of the active mind, it is a practice which is stunning in its simplicity and so available to all. Mysteriously, it is a practice which works instead through the vibration of sound. Unlike ordinary particular sounds which move out into the creation as words and things like tablecloth, marmalade, fascism and things like that, it works through special universal sounds. And these universal sounds, instead of moving out into the creation, have the propensity to move back towards source. And in the process, they do three useful, interesting, helpful things. One, it is possible, with their help, to navigate and transcend the active mind in us. Two, they create the conditions in which the intellect can work. And three, and probably most important of all, they start chipping away at this causal world our, where our troublesome heritage lies. And it is by this triple powerful action, and particularly the ability to work at the causal level, that meditation has the power to uncover the false self, to restore balance to the mind, and to bring about real and lasting change in the being. As ever, the active mindedness would like to know, how does this all work, this mysterious thing? And although there are analogous descriptions which attempt to answer the question, the more useful answer is, don't know how it all works. And perhaps it's just as well. For clearly, if we did know, we would start to interfere here also, to try to improve, to manage, to find something to suit the Irish way of life. Maybe even the people who live in Wicklow have come up with some special arrangement. So in one way or another, we would seek to bring the practice under my control, which of course lands us right back in the very place it was designed to transcend. You don't want to be back in there in the active mind. While how it works may be hidden from us, its effects are undoubted, and are therefore all to see. And along with any changes the individual may experience, there are ten clearly observable effects of bright meditation. And I'm going to call out the ten of them quickly for you. We can have a discussion about them later on. The first of these is good physical health and quick recovery in case of illness. The second one is a sense of renunciation of useless things. See discrimination right here. A proper sense of proportion in life. 
things are done when necessary and not just out of uncurbed energy. Strengthening of the faculties of experience. That's the five senses of perception and the five organs of action. Number five, forgiveness, which depends on not letting the mind get excited. And from this, kindness and compassion increase and develop naturally into universal love. Six is loss of the sense of separation. This is mine and this is yours. Seven, freedom from greed, freedom from envy and malice. First less greedy and then not greedy at all. Eight, freedom from fear. Nine, increase in self-confidence. And ten, gloominess diminishes. We see the bright side of things. And these are the symptoms of bright meditation, and these are the very qualities that are most difficult to obtain in any other way. But with meditation, they come naturally, as hunger is naturally satisfied from eating. It is useful to be reminded that these are the observable effects of meditation, not the aim. The aim of meditation takes us right back to where we started. And the aim is to disperse the feeling of incompleteness which we experience due to ignorance and uniquely by restoring balance to lead us to completeness, to wholeness, to unity and ultimately to the simple truth itself. So there it is, ladies and gentlemen. While philosophy asks the master questions, it is the fortunate few who discover that it is meditation which holds the master key to their resolution. And we should be happy to join that few. Thank you very much. So, ladies and gentlemen, in summary, there are two aspects of mind. One, the upfront, busy, doing, thinking, active mind. And the other, the quiet intellect. And it is not unusual in the ordinary run of things that the balance is lost. The active mind runs the show. And it does so without discrimination, based on personal preference and the ego. Meditation has been evolved to restore that balance, to quieten the active mind, and in addition to create the conditions in which the intellect can function, and to start chipping away at our troublesome causal heritage, those things in our causal aspect of the mind which cause us to act the way we do. Now, why didn't I say that in the first place and we could have all gone early to tea? <laughs> but there you are. That's a short summary. And if it opens up any questions for you, let's see if there are any answers. I just have a question about balancing the work of the active mind 
versus the intellect. So my question is, will the ego and the active mind still have a, a role to play? Or is it a question of trying to eliminate that type of activity? Very good. Well, it's not a question of trying to eliminate the active mind. Without the active mind, we couldn't do anything. We couldn't sit here, we couldn't speak, we couldn't hear. We couldn't do any of the things that we need to do on a daily basis. It is a terrific, brilliant servant, but a terrible master. So the idea is just to put it in its box so it does its job, which is to run the senses, manage the senses, and allow the data to transfer in and out. And doing that, it is wonderful. Running the show, not great. So restoring balance is creating the conditions in which the active mind is doing its job and the intellect is available to us. Not one or the other. Curiously enough, it's one or both. You can operate with the active mind and never know anything about the intellect. But once the intellect is brought into play, you are aware of the intellect and the active mind. Is that fair enough? You said at the um, beginning that philosophy was the pursuit of wisdom. And yes. then I, I interrupted you during your speech and I said that would it be fair to say that we become wise with age? Right. <laughs> Do we become wise with age? Sometimes. But wisdom in the philosophical sense means true wisdom. It is understanding the master questions. What am I? What am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? What's my purpose in life? What is my relationship with this creation? These are the questions that the wisdom referred to in philosophy seeks to answer. And they don't necessarily feature just because we get older. It's possible to go through an entire lifetime and not to touch on any of those questions. It's possible for us to have endless conversations over in restaurants, in pubs, in social company, and never ever touch on those questions at all. So, just getting older, unfortunately, <laughs> by itself, won't do it. You can end up very clever, but not necessarily wise. Wisdom for a human being is understanding the purpose or the function of a human life. And without knowing what that is, you cannot know whether you are being wise or not. And philosophy sets out to discover what is the function or the purpose of a human life. And so its path lies along the path of self-knowledge. Not surprisingly, some philosophical systems offer meditation as a key in that voyage of discovery because it brings about the stillness which allows the intellect to come into play which steers the true course. Intellect is interested in truth. It's not interested in your opinion or it's not interested in chit-chat. Uh, I just wonder, um, 
how it is that the active mind is the one that seems most dominant and how it is that the intellect is sort of hidden or away or has to be explored and found out about. Is there a reason for that? Is there some historical background or is, is, there, is there something there that we, that we need to know as to, as to how it has come to be like that? And secondly, how is it then that we can work more on the intellect yes. and allow it to dominate? Well, there are two good questions. The active mind, it is the lord of the senses. It controls the senses, the sensory world. In the mythologies, it's often described as Hermes, the fleet-footed god, because it's so fast and it's so all-pervasive. Mercury, another version of it. Because it controls the senses, it has a unique capacity to create an imaginary world. And in creating this imaginary world, often an alluring world or a dangerous world, it captures our attention. It's a noisy, busy, all-action, upfront, get-it-done type of organ of mind. And so it just takes our attention. And I'm not sure that without the direction of the wise or a philosophy course or whatever, that you'd ever get your attention back or realize that there is another aspect to the mind. It's just everywhere. At the moment, if you are churning in your mind, thinking about what questions you'd like to ask or, or if there's any doubts or criticism, that's the act of mind. It's just up front. And because it is so powerful and so fast, and its business is action, it dominates. And it brings with it the idea, which is very prevalent, if I could just say, this active intellect thing just doesn't divide an individual, it has divided the entire world in two. In our Western civilization and culture, what we value is the voice of Greece in us. That's the voice of science and politics. That's the Western way of life. And there is not much taught about the other half, the Eastern tradition, which is the voice of mysticism and religion. And that division runs right through, if you like, you could divide the East and West into those two camps. And certainly in the culture that I grew up in, typical Dublin Christian community, it was get up and go. The idea of falling still, falling silent, did not appear anywhere on the curriculum. <laughs> there was no value put on it. In fact, I would think that that's probably true in our Western society. It's seen as wasting time. Just not in our culture. Not much teaching about it, not much known about it. So somehow or another, the active mind, based on the scientific world and the can-do attitude, is the one that dominates. With regard to the second part of the question, the key thing, and I'm speaking here from personal experience, the key thing to realize that there is a value in being still and being silent. I had to learn that. Someone had to tell me that. That there was life beyond 
the ego and the active mind. And I doubt, I doubt if ever I would have discovered it. I remember my surprise when it was pointed out to me. My world was based on the ego and the active mind. Get it done. If I don't do this, it's not going to get done. That kind of approach. But there is something really valuable that lies just on the other side of the ego and the active mind. Something really precious, really worthwhile. And it seems to have the effect of balancing the whole human being. Well worth discovering. It's an area that we don't go to often enough. And the key to it is to fall still. And the key to falling still, one of the keys to falling still is meditation. I don't know if that answers the question. You were saying that the active mind controls the senses, but is it not the other way around? The senses are controlling the active mind. You have all the sensory input. I would rather see it that way. Yes. And to attain stillness, you have to, in some ways, through meditation, shut out some of the senses and control them. So the way I'm looking at it is, is the intellect controls the senses, or should control the senses, not the active mind. Right. Well, very good. Well, in a philosophical system designed to work in this area, there are two types of exercise that are offered. One type of exercise that's offered is one that seeks to operate by using the senses, by actually using the senses. And in using the senses, the active mind falls quiet. The other way of working is by using statements of truth, which the intellect picks up and dissolves the ignorance. It works a different way. But there is no doubt that whatever data the senses bring in, in the form of electrochemical impulses, it is the active mind which translates them into whatever is presented to us. That's its business. And it's great at doing that, but not great on the old discrimination. It's really only interested in me. And so, as a way of dealing with the world, it's great, but as an arbiter as to how to live the life, very dodgy. And if we don't know any better, that's all we've got. It doesn't have reason or discrimination in its gift. So any system that is going to be helpful to us needs to create the conditions in which the active mind does its business and the intellect is in play. That would be terrific. I just wonder about the practice of meditation. You know, I've done it in different courses, but I've not been very disciplined in doing it. Will I get a benefit if I can discipline myself, say, to, to stop for five minutes? But another question I have is, sometimes when I want to still my mind, if it's very active, I would do a crossword. And I would find that a great sweet. Would that be like a sort of meditation? Because it, it's, you know, it's quietening all the chatter. Very good. It's not recommended in the literature, crosswords. Don't come on. <laughs> but it is an interesting point, an interesting point that you make. If I just raise it out to the group here. It is the case, ladies and gentlemen, that anything which takes our attention 
out is useful. Because when you take your attention out, that which sustains the inner activity is turned out, and the inner activity starts to subside. So listening to music, doing crosswords, any of those things, or listening to when someone is speaking to you, will take your attention out, and that's useful. It's the attention turned in. It's the Michal Omura Hertwig in your head that's <laughs> chatting away about everything ceaselessly is a problem. So anything that turns your attention out is useful. However, it would not be certain, certainly not clear to me, that such practices would have the dynamic of meditation, which is the ability to work at the causal level. That's where the real change takes place. And so these exercises are fine. They bring us to rest. They give us moments of rest. But they don't seem to have that extra dimension which meditation offers. And while there are many techniques for coming to rest, meditation is always wheeled in as the big gun. With regard to practicing meditation, it is better to practice for five minutes than not to practice for a half an hour. <laughs> There's an interesting way that you can trick this fellow here. This fellow here will always offer resistance. He'd never want to meditate. Meditation is good night for this fellow, so he don't want to meditate. So there'll always be resistance. But what you can do is this. You can trick him. You can say, I'm going to meditate for five minutes. You sit down for five minutes, and as the mind quietens, then make the decision as to whether you're going to meditate or not, proceed or not. So you just actually get past the natural resistance. It's not just resistance. It is the amazing capacity of the active mind to present alternative agendas, all of which seem more attractive than the one you <laughs> had intended. This ego is the father of lies. It'll tell you anything. Anything. Doesn't matter. Anything. Watch out for, I'll do it in a minute. It's a lie <laughs> which we believe. We tell ourselves, we believe it. And all of those similar type things. Check, see if this is your experience. On any given night, you do what you want to do, and you end up dissatisfied. And there are those occasions when you do what you ought to do or should do, and you end up satisfied. It's an extraordinary thing. You do what you want, and you feel, ah! Oh. And you overcome that resistance and do whatever is appropriate, and there is satisfaction. I'm glad I did that. And over and over and over again, we are calmed by this fellow here who says, this is what you really want to do. <laughs> and so the night goes by, and the day goes by, and a week goes by. And this is where, where did the last five years go, arises. And it is possible, where did the life go? Where were you? Absent. Working out here somewhere. <laughs> Thinking. <laughs> Not in the present. Not present. Not present.
Ego doesn't like the present moment, can't survive there. It needs your attention. And if you're a present, your attention is out. And so there's no time and no space for the commentary or the critique or anything. So the ego does not like the present moment. And so it will come up with everything to hold you in the dream. Look at this. <laughs> Given that so much of our culture is driven by activity, action, it's a very difficult one to turn around and say, I won't be so active, I'll maybe consider things more generally and become more skilled and more intellectual. Surely that's a big expectation. Yes, indeed. And implicit, you, did you hear the question at the back? That our culture is based on action, and if we were to abandon action and all fall still, that would be too big a change, too big a transformation to make, and would be uh, impossible to sustain in our modern culture. Now, is that a fair representation of the question? Implicit in the question is the notion that in order to fall still, all action ceases. And that would be not a fair understanding of the position. It is possible to be here now, attending a lecture, or even giving the talk, and be still. You don't have to be coming from busyness. And it's possible to work from stillness. It's all to do with the control of the attention, and attention is efficiency. So, in developing a still base in the life, you are not going to become inefficient, unemployable, <laughs> or inactive. <laughs> but rather, you will be coming from that place, that steady place of stillness, with discrimination and reason and measure. Discrimination would be where the measures are as well. Things are done when necessary rather than from uncurbed energy. All the measures are there, the measure of sleep. Eating, exercise. So it's not about stopping I, I wouldn't want to leave that impression with you. It's not about not doing anything, but it is having a connection with that base so that what we do comes from stillness. And it keeps us going all day. The meditation in the morning looks after the day. The meditation in the evening looks after the evening. Supposing your intellect told you that something was bad for you, but your active mind continued to, to enjoy it, how does one attempt to balance out and, I mean, you, you actually know, you have the knowledge, but you haven't got the capacity to act on it, if you like. How does yeah, it all fit good. in? Well, <laughs> that's why we need something like meditation. The whole nourishing of the intellect is done however you do it. Meditation is the one we're talking about tonight, but however you do it, and meditation seems to be very effective in this area, is by bringing that balance about. And so you practice meditation. 
Now, there's an interesting thing about discrimination is that it doesn't work on the basis of a great battle going on in the life. That is more connected with the active mind, where we try to assert willpower and resolution, all that kind of thing. As discrimination rises in us, there is a natural losing of interest in things that are not helpful. That's what discrimination is. As it rises, things that we thought were interesting are no longer interesting. And so it works in a kind of withering away rather than great, great battles. You would not be nailed to the floor practicing discrimination, trying to hold out. It doesn't seem to work that way. So, just practice falling still, however you can do it. Discrimination rises, and that which is harmful subsides. We just lose interest in it. And if not immediately, then eventually. Is that any help? If you're thinking about something in particular. To improve, there's only one thing required, and that is to fall still. The powers of discrimination come with the kit. They don't have to be educated. They don't have to be trained. They don't have to be informed. You simply create the conditions in which they can operate, and they operate. Just like the horses. You know no horses, no horsemanship. It's in there. And that's what's so useful about the intellect. It's the seat of creativity in us as well. So it's connected with all knowledge. So if you are seeking that creative answer to a problem, Instead of tossing it around in the active mind, comparing option A with option B, fall quiet. Sometimes it happens by accident. We sleep on a problem and wake up in the morning and we have a solution. Don't know where it came from. All that happened was perhaps the active mind shut down for a while and the old intellect got a look in. What we incline to say is, I'm going home, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to think about it. You're better off to fall still. Collect the data. That's the active mind's job. Fall still. Are you thinking about a particular thing? And is it possible to say what it is? Right. That's a good one. Mm. Uh, the intellect has its work cut out for it because it's printed on the packet that it's going to kill you. <laughs> Well, it's printed on the packet. <laughs> yeah. But certainly, it will be my experience with the philosophy group that I am part of that over the years, I've seen very heavy smokers just stopping. Just stopping. That mind over matter. I suppose you could say that, but it's not a struggle. Struggle is down here in the act. That's where struggle is. This struggle between, will I do this, will I do that, that's all very contentious and worrisome and troublesome and effort and process. No process up here. Just what's true appears. So as you practice, 
discrimination rises, and as discrimination rises, you lose interest in anything that's harmful or not useful. So you don't have to remember anything about this talk, really, so long as you can just fall still. That's all you have to do. Smoking, it is an addiction. I'm thinking of worse addictions like, say, heroin addiction, things like that. Has philosophy ever been used in the treatment of addictions? I'm talking about physical addictions. Yeah. Perhaps on the rehabilitation side. But the difficulty is, with philosophy as with other things, that you have to be... There needs to be a sufficient ability to attend in order to achieve anything. You've got to be able to give your attention out. And some addictions are so far gone that that is not even possible. It doesn't even have to be an addiction to hard drugs. It can be an addiction to talking to yourself in your head. We were just talking earlier about people getting older. When people get older, they have been spent so long in their heads, they just tell you the same story over and over and over and over and over again. Often at the same time, <laughs> it doesn't have any intervals. And when the attention goes in like that, it's, um, it's very difficult. And this condition can become pathological and uh, go in and never come out. And that's where you get your depression and all of that kind of stuff. So perhaps on the rehabilitation end of things, but people have to be able to make some kind of effort. Yes, sir. Well, as the intellect comes to the fore or increases, does the need to attend philosophy classes diminish? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. That would be right. Not only philosophy classes, but all sorts of other classes and all kinds of things. The vision between the two is operating under this fellow here, the lower end of the thing, the life is acquisitive. It is give me more. More of everything. And operating here, the only process that's useful is surrender. So one way you're accumulating stuff, and the other way, if this is operating, you're surrender. Let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. This way you can be running around the world collecting, and this way you can sit in your room and let go. And that's only possible because the intellect is connected to all, not, nothing is missing. So are the schools self-liquidating? Yes, they are for individual students, but then there are so many other people that have to be looked after. <laughs> so they keep going. <laughs> Well, that's right, yeah. You can go on the acquisitive thing, yeah. And the end of our searching shall be the beginning, and to know it as for the first time. I think it was Eliot, some one of the poets said it. But it does seem that we need help to let go. The active mind is very strong in us. It's in our, in our bones, in our culture. Is there a particular type of meditation or school of meditation that is easier right. to begin with? For 
right. novices. Very good question. Is there a particular type of meditation? Meditation which, with which I would be most familiar and which the school offers is mantra-based meditation, which is based on the vibration of sound. There are other forms of meditation. There are forms of meditation based on touch, based on sight, based on meaning. But the mantra-based meditation, which is based on the vibration of sound, is based on universal sound. It's not based on meaning. And for that reason, it has the, if you like, added benefit that it doesn't hold you in the realm of understanding or meaning and can take you to stillness, which is beyond meaning. I'm sure it's possible that some of the other systems, even the ones based on meaning, can do that, but mantra-based meditation is very pure in that regard. In terms of the senses, they're arranged hierarchically, and hearing is the highest, the finest of the senses, and its element is space. And so using hearing and space, you're in an area without limit. And so it's very conducive in terms of meditation, to take you beyond, or to take you beyond limit. You mentioned now that it's a mantra-based meditation, and we've been doing in our first sessions an exercise, which is actually all-embracing. Whereas I found, I did transcendental meditation, right, and I found that the mantra-based one was shutting everything else out, the sound. And I'm surprised that we've been doing this so-called exercise. I know yes. it's, it's, a, it's a very easy one to do. I'm surprised that it is, is actually the opposite way around. Well, very good. Okay, well, just to say to you, ladies and gentlemen, there are two useful states of the attention. One when the attention is open wide, and the other when it's focused to a point. Both are useful, both are different. And what you find is that exercise that you're using is very accessible and very useful early on. It's not meditation such. Meditation where the attention comes to a point is another approach. And its point is sound, and the vibration of the sound is what does the work. While the exercise is useful in bringing us to rest, you need something like meditation to get into the causal end of things, to bring about real change. What do you mean by stillness? What's your definition or understanding of it? Right. Well, stillness is when the active mind shuts down or shuts up, whichever you prefer. And you move from thinking to being. And we do a little exercise to round off to try and illustrate that. But most of the time, we're living in our heads, we're in the thinking area. And meditation and the exercise that was mentioned earlier are all concerned with moving us just simply to being and away from the activity of thinking. That includes feeling, worrying and doubting, the whole bit. So you're just still. Do you not need to think to engage the intellect, to reason? No. To reach truth? No. 
Or to discriminate, no? <laughs> no. <laughs> now, this could have us here all night. Uh, <laughs> right. What often passes for reason is rationalizing, which goes on in the active mind. But real thinking or reason is silent. Silent. And it is, and this is very difficult to handle in, in a group like this, but let me just try and say this way, that in reaching the truth, ultimately the truth, all objectivity has to be sacrificed. So any thinking or reasoning which produces an answer, no matter how fine it is, there's further to go. And so you move from thinking to realization, or from thinking to being, which does not involve thinking, understanding, any of that kind of stuff. Now, I understand how in isolation that sounds very <laughs> <laughs> peculiar, but in meditation that's what the possibility is, that you just leave all that stuff and come to rest. You don't disappear, but you're at rest. And if you want to go thinking about things, you can think about them. But the thrust of meditation, that's why it's so interesting and why it may feel a bit strange to us, is it takes us past thinking, past understanding, past doing, past fixing, just to rest. And there's something there really worth finding. Your true self. If I could just say, you arrive at what you are and leave what you might think you are. That's what happens. So you have to leave thinking and just simply go to being. Is that too complicated? No, I go to right. it seems like there's another dimension then. There is another dimension, yes, which is dimensionless. <laughs> it's good. It's going it's to get worse, folks. <laughs> right. Isn't it true then to say that where we find it hard to become still is that we are afraid to meet ourselves, as you said just a minute ago? Yeah. That's why I, the active mind says, oh, I think I'll just clean the windows, or i do this, or I'll right. do my sitting later. Yeah. Because you're actually afraid of meeting your inner self because you're afraid of what you might find. Yeah. But it's not as bad as you think usually. Yeah. It's not even so much you're afraid of what you might find, it is that you have to leave everything with which you're familiar. And to take courage to do that. You can go right to the brink and say, if I take one more step, I've gone out of here, you know? <laughs> and it is that point of just surrender, let go. And what you find is, your, is yourself. And there is fear, you're quite right, it is fear. I'm not sure it's fear of what you'll find. I think it's fear of leaving everything that's so familiar. I just feel at times from meditation that you're turning your back on our Lord because he didn't advise you to do it. So yes. am, I, am I doing something that he wouldn't approve of? And so one half of you is with it and the other half is, I really don't want to go all out <coughs> on this. Yeah. I'm reminded here now, going back a few years here now, but the catechism I remember growing up on was said that prayer was the elevation of the soul to God. Am I right? Can anybody, can anybody confirm me in that? 
It's amazing the mind and heart of God. Okay. In that regard, meditation would be very similar or would be of that order. That what you're doing is you're leaving your individual perspective, your individual world, and surrendering to the greater world or the spiritual world. And that you're going further than devotion which is me and God, and going further in devotion to unity itself, to merging with the absolute, supreme, true self. In many ways, the description early on of the active mind here is the individual opposed, the individual seeing himself or herself separate and detached. That is the view from the active mind, that I am separate, individual, limited, and so on. The view from here is that if you leave the separate and the individual and surrender that, that you merge with that which is one. You leave the appearances of the pots and you join the unity of the clay. And so therefore, if you take that view, it will be the highest form of prayer, devotion, or philosophical practice, whatever you like to call it. Just take a moment on that. It is interesting in philosophy groups that there are different types and we have different dispositions. Just like you have head, heart, and gut, there are three types of individual. You get those of the head who are full of reasoning and understanding. And you get those of the heart who are full of devotion. And you get those of the gut who are interested in action. Now why that is, comes to mind at the moment is this, is that in any group of people then, you have the heads going on about understanding and reasoning, while the hearts have their heads in their hand and do not know what the heads are going on about. Can't figure it out at all. I haven't a clue what it's about. And the same thing is true when the hearts are talking, the heads don't know what's going on, really haven't a clue. They may as well be talking Martian. So you have this different perspective. And in a group, the gut people, the action people, they don't really say much at all. But they're looking at the other two and they're thinking, <laughs> they're thinking, there's nothing wrong with those that a good dose of hard work <laughs> wouldn't sort out. So you have those three. And so for some people, I'm just going back to your question now, some people, devotion is the way they work. And for other people, it's understanding and reason. And for other people, they'll take up the collection. But meditation serves all three. Well, that may be it. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if that is it, what I'd like to do now is just, is just ha have this exercise, which is not meditation per se, but it does allow us, uh, some of us will be familiar with it, allow us perhaps an experience to make the connection with some of the things we've been talking about. And obviously you can take this exercise away with you, and if you forget everything else that we've spoken about, 
this exercise will serve you well, serve you well. It's an exercise in the control of attention, and if you are comfortable and you'd like to close your eyes, please do that. And just follow the instructions. Watch out for the all active mind wanting to do it and fix it and improve it and change it. Watch out for all of that. All right, well, let us just be aware of the body on the chair and the weight of the body on the chair, the feet on the ground, and be aware of the clothes on the skin. and the gentle play of air on the hands and face. Taste. Smell. Don't think smell, smell. And now let the attention go to the hearing. And let the hearing go wide. Now the useful thing here is the hearing rather than the sounds. The sounds come and go, and the hearing simply is. So stay with the hearing, and let it run out to the furthest and gentlest sounds. Hearing in this way, nothing is excluded. Everything is allowed to come and to pass. Uh, notice something useful, that the attention goes to the sounds, which are temporary and transient, and misses the hearing, which simply is. Whatever is thrown up by the active mind, have no truck with it for these few moments. And just enjoy the razor's edge of attention with the hearing. The mind will fall quiet by itself, and the ego, 
And when this happens, there is peace. And this is the peace of your true self. And the mark of this peace or rest is there's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. Nothing to achieve. Nothing to lose. And nothing to fear. This peace is always available, it's always accessible, and it always satisfies. And it lies just beyond the active thinking mind, hidden in the present. continue to surrender and let go whatever is presented and just be at rest. And this rest is the same rest for everyone in the room. not personal. Just again, check with the attention, back to the hearing, leave everything else. Check what's going on. If your attention is gone, just bring it back. Tend to the hearing. Let the hearing go wide. And leave everything else. Any resistance is just the active mind doing its thing. Thinking. Thinking can't help us here. Enjoy being. Well, very good, ladies and gentlemen. Well done.